Hi, and thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. We're your hosts, Matt Domney and Kyle Dobbs. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is another episode of Compound Performance Radio. I am Kyle Dobbs, and I've got uh, Matt McKinnis Watson on today from, from the UK originally and now in uh, Abu Dhabi. And I'll let him do the long form intro, uh, and then we'll just get into it. We'll start uh, kind of chatting about what he does and who he works with and what's next for him. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, really appreciate it. Gives me a good chance for us to talk, talk shop and, you know, talk a bit of shit, maybe. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm Matt. I am, I'd say I'm a, I'm a coach. I'm a development coach, performance coach, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of that strange spectrum of where you fit within the industry. You know, you could be working with 12-year-old aspiring athletes or, you know, veterans that have been there and done it all. Um, but yeah, I love to coach, uh, work a lot within the track and field uh, community. Uh, and that's kind of been my background as an athlete. I uh, was, a, was a high jumper, was a, was a failed high jumper, should have been a lot better than I was. Um, and yeah, I've kind of taken that forward to what I think is my, my speciality and niche, and that's plyometrics and dynamic movement, um, you know, fitting amongst that spectrum of speed, power and you know, everything fast. And yeah, it's kind of led me into a, down a pathway of currently doing a PhD in plyometrics and also running a business that is kind of primarily plyometrics based, uh, trying, to, trying to give the, the industry a bit of a taste of you know, what plyometrics could be um, and how that integrates within the rest of their training and how it's, yeah, it, it's an integral part of everything rather than this kind of singular thing that people don't really know what they're doing with. So, you know, and, and that's ultimately is my, is my goal as well for that side of my, uh, of my coaching and, and professional work um, is, to, is to bring that to the industry and, yeah, and provide a different set of eyes to it, I think. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, just I think I'm getting, just getting started. I'm only 31, so people be like oh he's a he's a youngster in amongst the the coaching game but i i feel like i've always kind of been a, a coach um sounds like a strange thing but even from the age of 19 20 when i was still an athlete um i always coached people within our training group you know when you work in a track and field group when there's high jumpers triple jumpers there's multi-event as you've and you've got one main coach you know if you're the senior guy you end up coaching the youngsters so um, you know, I think my coaching journey started then. So I feel like I've been in the coaching world for 11, 12 years now. Um, and, and I've had a mentor that's kind of fed that for the, for the whole duration of up until now who I still work with. So yeah, that was the, well, that was, the, that was the long form, but you know, yeah, that's, that's me. That's what I love to do. Um, and yeah, just love getting, getting my head into anything speed and, and power related. That's awesome. And, and I can, uh, as a quote unquote failed, uh, 400 runner and basketball player from back in the day, I can, I can cl- completely sympathize with, with that aspect of things. Um, and, and I mean, I, I will say like the, I think I found you through 
maybe Joel Smith's page. He may, he might've reposted something that, that you posted at some point, but it's like, as soon as I got on your page the first time, I kind of went down this like weird rabbit hole of like 30 minutes of watching your like plyometric videos. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that the two things that really stood out to me was one, as somebody who is way heavier than they used to be, I'm insanely jealous at your ability to do plyometrics and be super elastic because it's much harder for me now than it was back in the day. And, and two, just that a lot of the stuff you do is... I think very different from, from a lot of the other things that you, we kind of see traditionally posted, you know, or at least I see traditionally posted with the people that I follow. Um, and, and there's just a lot of, you know, just kind of different concepts and different applications that I see you do. And, you know, one, it, it looks, you know, really cool. And, and two, it looks really fun. You know, I kind of like the way you go about things. I think a lot, and I think it, again, especially when you're working with athletes, uh, both of those things kind of matter as well. Uh, and, you know, so I'm, I'm definitely interested in kind of diving into your thought process as far as kind of how you, you go through the application process of these and, and, and even kind of like the discovery process, you know, where, where you kind of, or how you assess what qualities like a, a, an athlete's going to need and where you kind of begin them through and kind of what your process looks like from that perspective. Uh, obviously that's super broad. Uh, so if we want to, if we want to think of, kind of I, I always, I hate asking questions like that. Cause I, I hate getting questions like that. I'm just like, okay, that's for who, you know, but, but if we're just looking at kind of your traditional, you know, pretty high level, you know, athlete that wants to come in and like take it to the next level, you know, what's, sure. what's that assessment and integration process kind of look like for them? Well, I think that's, that's actually a really good starting point is, is getting an athlete that wants to stand out from, from everyone else. And I think that I'm not going to kind of, kind of blow my own trumpet, but the group of athletes that I was part of when I was an athlete, when I looked around, you know, you, as a track athlete, when you work, especially in the UK, like we, we don't do it necessarily in, a, in a, an education setting. There are bits of it, but you'll go to a more of a professional outside club. Um, so you'll turn up and there's, you know, there's 10 different groups. There's guys, there's the throwing group, there's the speed group, there's the endurance guys. There's, and one thing that constantly stood out was how much better us jumpers moved than the 90% of the other um, groups did. And, and I think that it showed in the, you know, you can chuck us to, you know, the most basic term, like just simple athleticism. We were very linear based athletes. Most of us, okay. High jumpers, you could argue is a slightly rounder bend, but it's pretty, pretty straightforward in, in, uh, in motion. But, if we ever got into a scenario where we would play ultimate frisbee with the other groups, or you know we would cook, kick a, a football or soccer ball round, we we always moved better than the other guys did. Um, and and I've constantly tried to figure out why that was over the kind of period of turning into a coach as well. Um, and through developing things that cannot be taught necessarily in a weight room. They can't be taught necessarily constantly doing your own, you know, your specific technical work um, on the field or, you know, if you're a javelin thrower, throwing javelin is not going to make you well-rounded in, in all different things. So variability of movement 
and understanding how your body moves in space and dealing with overload at speed and understanding how your body reacts to um, stabilizing in different ranges of motion, understanding how that feels in multiple directions has always been a staple of when I was an athlete for my programming and now continues through to coaching even the most specific the technical guys, you know, you could say that the hundred meters is, you know, they've got one thing and that's to run fast in a straight line. And even variability steps into to their realm of training, I think. Um, so going back to the fun element, I knew that every time I turned up to a session where we had a plyometrics um, insert or we did a, a heavy plyometric based night, our coach would bring to us one or two movements that we've kind of not seen before. And, and, we would do as jumpers, we would do up to six, seven, eight hundred landings a night, you know, and they go from really highly intense movements all the way down to very, very extensive movements. But the variability of movement was always something that really stuck with me. And I, and I think that's been a big part of how I now step forward with my programming and how I develop my programs for my athletes. So, you know, can they, can they hop on one leg and they bound on one leg from one side to the other? Can they move bilaterally? Are they able to do that in different directions, at different amplitudes, different rates, different ranges of motion? And I think that's been a, a big part of, you know, being selfish as a coach, but retaining athletes because of an enjoyment factor. My guys love to turn up and do plyometric sessions. They're like, this is the most fun that I get. Standing under a bar gets tedious and boring. And if you'll often find that the, the guys that are in the fitness industry that look the best are the people that do not mind monotonous stuff. I find that, you know, it's, it's so, it's so much easier when you have freedom of movement to be playful. And it kind of takes us back to, I think much more of a, a young adolescent like frame of mind because athletes also then become quite playful and you know, you'll, you'll see a fad online. You'll see someone doing a, a really, you know, a simple movement. I see some guys that go from a kneeling position up into like a single leg deep, you know, pistol squat and stand up. From the group of track athletes that I used to have, that was the sort of thing that one of them would be like, oh, can you do this? And they'll, they'll challenge each other. And 90% of the group will be able to do it. And even the 15, 14-year-old females could do it. And it never phased them. Whereas when I stepped into other realms... I'd work with 20 year old basketball players, male basketball players. They just didn't have the ability to use their bodies in the same way. Um, so yeah, I hope, hopefully that's a, a slight, you know, opening to that question and it gives you a little bit of um, nuance to it. Maybe it was quite a vague answer to the, the question, but you know, hopefully we can kind of move on and we'll dig into a bit more. Oh, for sure. And, and I knew it was a vague question going into it. So I think that's probably about the best thing. <laughs> we could start with uh but no i there are a few things that definitely i think highlighted for me in there that that i'd like to maybe dig into a little deeper and the first had to do with you know jumpers and just overall what we'll call like movement capacity right as opposed to kind of your sprinters and, and obviously your throwers and more of your you know kind of i don't know strength strength based athletes or, or explosive based athletes from that perspective uh, and the second one was just, um, yeah, like enjoying the training and being playful, you know, cause that's, that's something where 
like right now, like my, my two sons are kind of just now getting into sports or 10 and eight. And it's like, that's the biggest thing that I see with them is they just have to like it, you know, and they like different things and they like them for different reasons. They're both very different kids. And, you know, people, you know, obviously because I, I work in the, the industry always message me like, Oh, what are they doing for training? And it's like, they're 10 and eight. Like they're not, we're not doing anything for training. you know, it's like, we're, we're going to practices and we're having fun. And it's like, we play tag in the backyard. Like that's our athletic development, right? You know, we chase each other around and uh, which is good for me too. Uh, and, and I think that's where, you know, for, for these types of things, I, I do think, and I've, I've noticed this even within my own career as well, as I was kind of coming up through, through different levels of, of athletics that, you know, it, the more serious it gets, the more business-like it gets kind of the, the worse I was personally at it performing, you know, again, respective to the competition. And I think that's something a lot of athletes kind of face that by the time I was, you know, midway through college, I was completely burnt out on my sports. Like they were just things that I kind of showed up to and I didn't really enjoy doing them. Um, it definitely reflected in the intention that I brought into the, the practices and, and everything else. And and kind of even the things that I was doing outside of sport that, you know, detracted from my ability to probably play at a higher level. And I think that's, how do you, I, I think that's, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase the question well, but as a coach, like how do you keep kids and, and athletes, you know, just engaged and having fun? I, obviously there's the novelty aspect of trying new things in the competition, but, but what other, what other tools do you use from that, from that perspective? Well, if I, I mean, I'm, I'm only a technical, you know, technical coach for track and field events. So if, I, if I'm to go back to track and field, um, for things such as high jump for me is the perfect one because there's no, there's no real, like you can, as long as you clear a high jump bar, it, it doesn't matter. You've just got to leave, leave the ground off one leg. So it becomes the playground, I think, of track and field. Um, you know, pole vault's not the same. You have to you have to put the pole, the pole into the into the plant. And if you don't, you know that that's not accepted as a as a as a jump. So high jump was always a playground. So examples would be, you know, we finished our session. We've done maybe a technical session, and we have time after, especially with younger kids. I find the athletes kind of under the age of sixteen. They've always got. Or something to give at the end of the session you, you look at the older guys they're like 23 24 year olds and they're done they're led on their backs but the other kid the kids are bouncing around still so we we do things like we take our shoes off we do competitions where we're gonna jump the highest off of our wrong leg or we have to do a, a different movement when we leave the ground you jump off two feet and just becoming playful and we keep the event there but we bring in different variations, keep it fun, keep it playful. Can you do tandem jumps? Can you, yeah, all these different, um, different techniques, variations to, uh, to high jumping. And that's the same with my, with my plyometrics and, and working more than the, the physical prep realm of things. Um, I try to always bring in a new variation that challenges the group. So I might, when I'm doing super intense stuff, I know that the, the group of athletes that I've worked with may have five or six years of experience of my players. So I could pretty much chuck anything towards them and they'll kind of lap it up. Um, so we'll do things where I'll be like, cool, here's a med ball. Now do the exact same movement you just did 
with a medal over your head. And then you, you know, you bring in like a humorous element to it as well. And kids, kids are falling all over the place and, and they're laughing it out. And, and I think bringing humor into the scenario is a massive part of it because then other kids want to then go, well, I'm going to step up and I'm going to do this. and I'm going to prove you all wrong that I can do it. So keeping it competitive, I think is super, super important. And without even thinking about it, it goes back to the high jump stuff. Um, and we, we, we keep it competitive, no matter if you're world-class or you're 12 years old, we will always do things where it's a, the difference in between your personal best and what you can jump off of your say non-dominant leg and do it the wrong way or something like that. So we will scale things up. So, you know, if my personal best is two meters and I jumps 150 as a, as a better jumper, but I've got a 50 centimeter uh, decrement. Whereas the younger kids might only have 10 centimeters because they're not quite at that level. And those guys then win. And then it's this constant banter back and forward with, with the group and constantly having a relationship of, of a group of athletes. I think it's tough if you work in the uh, S&C realm of things where you, you might be working with an individual to keep it fresh and, and, and fun. I think that I often jump into the session with an athlete sometimes if, if they're alone because it's tough to make that interesting and keep that vibe there of, you know, this athlete is still motivated to, to get things done because there's going to be plenty of times in the year that it's just not fun. <laughs> and you know that what you're going to give them is not going to be fun. So yeah, it's, I constantly try new things. I don't ever kind of sit, sit on my laurels and, and think, well, yeah, I know that I've used this before and it'll work again, not necessarily. So um, I'm always trying different things um, and stealing things as well from other coaches because some, some people come up with great ideas. It, yeah, I think it's funny to to talk about kind of the the post practice, you know, kind of play around because that's, I think back to college and like basketball, like that's when we would all like work on dunks and mess around and we would do the same thing where we would kind of create um, constraints, right? Like you have to approach from your non-dominant approach side, you have to to dunk with your non-dominant hand or same leg, same arm or something like that. And it was just a bunch of a bunch of people goofing off, you know, after a practice. But it was also like looking back, obviously, like when I was 20 years old, I didn't really realize this, but it was also just a great way of building in a ton of kind of bonus variability and movement and kind of getting some different exposures as we went through that process too. And and it was just a way also as a team, like we all bonded, like we all just like had fun and laughed and joked around and gave each other crap and um, it was a ton of fun. And I, I think that's something that probably carries over to, to a lot of different team events. But as you said, anytime I was like shooting around on my own, I never incorporated. Like when I was done, I was done. Right. Cause I didn't have that kind of community to push. Um, or maybe I would just like, I don't know, do my technical stuff longer just because I didn't have a, a set time limit or parameters in place or, or whatever. But I, I yeah. like that. I like that. Um, that example because that's that's something I think a lot of athletes you know kind of encounter as they go through the process as well so I, I think getting into kind of the other side of things you know even just like looking at track athletes and the other question that I that I posed as far as you know jumpers being better overall movers as you got into like a field sport or something like that like you mentioned ultimate frisbee which is very dynamic and and you need a lot of qualities to kind of play why do you think that is, you know, do you see that as like a, like a, 
just a general athleticism perspective? Do you see that as even like maybe uh, a biomechanical bias of some kind based on just the sport adaptations or, you know, even uh, I always look at like selection bias, even like when I look at different events and track, like certain people are just, you know, based on their shapes and sizes, they're going to be kind of drawn into, into specific events sometimes. Uh, what, where do you kind of think that comes from or what have you seen? I think you're right. Like the, the typing of the athlete is, it is well fitted to that. You've got a lot of wiry, elastic, long guys, the type of guys that you would, you would see in like a young group of basketball players or, you know, long, they, they, they're pretty fast. They're pretty dynamic on the, on the ground. Um, and, you know, on the flip side of it, I think to be pretty biased um, and to piss a few people off, um, I think that they're doing a variability of training that maybe out trumps like a group of sprinters or a group of, of throwers where they have to be super fast. Mm -hmm. They have to be super dynamic off the ground. They have to be able to apply an enormous amount of force and they have to do it, you know, in lightning speed. So it's not necessarily the same in sprinting. You, you, people might argue that, okay, maybe to a certain degree, but there's not the forces in, uh, in sprinting that you see in like a, a triple jump landing yeah. or the takeoff in a high jump. And if you were to flip it to throwers, they're working towards more of the force end. Mm -hmm. I will say that some of the best shot putters in the world are probably the best over 10 meters, but that's kind of where it dies off. Yeah. So there's a bit of both. And you can move towards that. High jumpers are in this weird little group of them, th themselves where you can have some really, really strong high jumpers and you can have some really just elastic high jumpers. Um, and that's a world that I think the S&C industry needs to, to delve into to understand like you don't have to train these guys in all the in all the same ways like you can get someone strong in many different directions um and there are I, that's what i think is also pretty magical about the track and field community itself is that there are a lot of guys that prospered in covid and they didn't use weight rooms and they still were able to achieve pretty world-class or i'd say world record-breaking <laughs> capabilities in, in Tokyo. Um, you know, some of them would still be using the gym, but they they go about it differently. Um, so, you know, having a, a bias towards track and field. Um, but I have worked in, I've worked in basketball, worked in soccer, and I've worked now a bit more in American football. And I, I still see, still have that bias about me. I still don't see guys move as well as world-class jumpers do. So, um yeah, hopefully that answered the question, but I think they do a lot more plyometrics as well. <laughs> to, <laughs> to yeah, after that, that's kind of what I suspected a little bit, you know. And I, I think it, again, it's just there. There's definitely something where you know they they are just these, from my experience, these like super rangy, elastic athletes, like the majority of them, you know. And you you'll get obviously some really some really strong guys and but those are almost outliers. It's like when I ran the 400, like I was a six, four, 400 runner. Like I was the, you know, eight inches taller than a lot of the guys I would run against. So guess who's the last one out of the blocks in the first hundred for every race I ever ran. Right. But I would catch people like on the third split, you know, basically is, is where I'd be able to stride through. And 
and you you see the same thing where it's like you just see these kind of like natural selections and then you combine and overlay just training on top of that and building up the elasticity and building up the jumping and it all makes a lot of sense from that perspective you know and that's something i we even kind of talked with joel about in the past as far as like body structure and getting into isa types and different qualities that kind of build in with some of those things and you definitely see like archetypes you know sometimes within different different events and it's just interesting to watch kind of from the outside and, and looking back at my own experiences where i knew you know knew nothing virtually except that to just go out and, and do my thing and, and play my sports so that definitely interesting um looking more at you know the the training the training model and when you are working with athletes you know what I think one of the biggest things and one of the the biggest things I always wonder is somebody who hasn't ever coached a lot of plyometrics, but is very interested in them. Like, what's the dosing look like as far as like, how are you integrating these in with like jumpers versus sprinters versus like field sport athletes, you know, and we'll say like off season, uh, like basketball players, not in season, but um, just like, what's, what's kind of the dosing differences kind of are, what are they going to be based on those different realms? Yeah. I think, I think people, I think people would be surprised how much dosing you can give to track and field, uh, to, to field sport athletes. Yeah. Um, and it still take it takes time. And I think that it needs to, it's tough to, you know, if you step into a new role where you're coaching, let's say college athletes, to then bring in a ton of plyometric work is probably going to be quite difficult if you're working then with them in the in the off season or whatever it might be. Um, so it's about changing the industry in a way that you know that these guys have come through high school and they've had a regular insert of plyometrics um, and they've done that year round because that's the biggest detriment I think to, I get a lot of athletes that are like, great, finish my season. And now I'm going to increase all the, uh, all the plyometric landings that I was not, wasn't doing maybe in season. And there's a lot of, well, they you know, these guys are getting a lot of plyometrics within sport. Um, and I agree to a certain extent, but I also, also look at it in that it is, very subconscious and it's not necessarily a, a conscious thought process of I need to hit the ground with as much speed or as much volition as possible. Um, and those subconscious patterns are about efficiency of me being, you know, if I'm catching a rebound off the back of a hoop in minute one of a basketball game, I'm probably not going to do it to a maximum effort and I'm not going to bounce back off the floor and sprint down the, the court flat out because I know that I've still, I'm probably going to be playing for 35 minutes of this game because they need me and I'm, I'm a starting five or whatever. So it, it's, it's really difficult to explain that to a lot of coaches because they, they'll still say, Oh, well, they're still getting a landing or whatever. But I think that plyometrics has to be taught as this slight separate entity to, um, to the game itself. There are a lot of similarities, but there are also quite a few differences in the intent that we apply to it. So, you know, and, and if you were to look at the, the track and field world, it is a lot more specific to the events that they're doing. Um, it looks very similar. The biomechanical tendencies are very similar. So 
it can be that you are constantly doing plyometrics throughout the year and it never really changes that much. Um, and even when you're getting to doing more competition specific work, you're still doing a lot of plyometrics. Um, so in terms of the dosage throughout the week, um, I think that you should keep that stimulus throughout the year. And I, I tested that for about three seasons with a, a basketball team that I was working with back in the UK. And we kept in there two pretty, you know, pretty light sessions within the, within the season. But we constantly touched upon the four working tiers that I work with. And that's having a very light, extensive group of movements it's having a, a sub-maximal group of movements, a maximal group of movements, and then like a, a supplementary group of deeper range of motion movements. Um, so I make sure that that's undulated throughout the season. They'll obviously get more of it at certain times, but they constantly, like things never leave the program. They're just maybe less of those landings um, at a given time. So if we're building up to a big game, you know, it could be that the group is reducing the amount of let's say deep tier movements that are deeper in range. We're doing a lot more neurally stimulating intense work. Um, we're dropping down more of the submaximal work. We're still touching upon it a little bit. Um, we're doing the light movements, very rudimentary movements, maybe just to prepare for those intense movements. So I think that's the best way to look at it is to undulate that constantly. And you don't even, you could be doing 10 landings, but it's keeping that stimulus there. And it's maintaining that level. I think the worst, the worst thing that can happen is assuming that you're going to constantly grow season upon season, but not touch plyometrics for six months and then go, right, I'm going to start back at exactly where I finished up at the end of the off season last year and think I'm going to bounce on from that. No, you've probably gone back to, you've probably regressed quite, quite a way back actually. And, and the season has destroyed that along the way. So yeah, it, it's, it's actually been really challenging for me to try to educate coaches into to trying it and to giving it a go. It has to start at the first day in the off season. I think it can't start now <laughs> halfway through an off season. If you're in the middle of the season or whatever stage you're at, it has to start from day one and build throughout that whole stage. And it probably has to start when they're, you know, 15, 16 years latest. I'd have guys doing this at the age of 13 um, because I think it helps to move through peak height velocity and everything to continue through until the, the senior ranks. Yeah. I think that's super interesting because that's definitely against the grain from what, you know, just from what I see along with social media and even what I've thought and experienced in the past, but it's, it makes a ton of sense. Like even thinking about like a basketball game, right. Where, each athlete might have a max effort jump once or twice a game, like a true max effort jump, right? Like it does make a lot of sense because you think, well, there's a lot of steps, there's a lot of cuts, there's a lot of jumps, but a lot of them are sub-maximal. Like there is a whole, and you know, looking at like a sport like soccer or, uh, you know, even like a, like volleyball is another one where maybe you have a few, like a striker might have a few more max effort jumps in there. But a lot of what they do is very submaximal and very extensive in nature. And they're not getting a ton of high stimulus reps. And sometimes practice, and I mean, my experience of practice is again, it's like when you're in season, if you're playing multiple games a week, like two of those practices are basically walkthroughs. 
like you're not doing anything like maybe some scout team stuff maybe running through like we'd have practices where we wore sweats right we were like we literally were just going through walkthroughs and didn't even have our basketball shoes on and then the other ones are again like you're not necessarily doing high stimulus drills you're working through plays you're doing some scrimmage stuff you're breaking down threes and twos things of that nature but yeah when you look at in-season work like it's actually very sub-maximal from that from that from a stimulus perspective and and I think that's where coaches probably myself included have kind of mixed up things in the past is it's I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this it means more it's more important but it's less stimulus you know which is which is kind of a, a weird dichotomy that you kind of run into there and that and that's a really good point I love what you said about undulating it through the process as well just like you would any other training right you know just so I definitely, uh, that makes a ton of sense. And I like the way you broke that down. That's pretty cool. And, and I think to, to add to that as well is that what I think is really effective is if you start it from day one of the, the off season where they're getting a lot more volume at certain stages is I have a group of athletes that are able to actually handle a bit more neural stimulus in season than a group of athletes that just aren't doing the type of volumes that we've done. Yeah. Like they, you know, and there are certain stages within the, within the off season or they're getting to the first few weeks in the season, but they're pretty, you know, pretty beat up, mm-hmm. but we, we get to a stage where, okay, they, they've got used to what games feel like. I'm, I'm understanding how my body's adapting to it. We might tweak a few things. Um, but we're we're intelligent about things. How can I, how can I use a you could say a, a potentiation session or something that's going to prepare them for the game as an opportunity to add in, you know, ten highly intensive plyometric landings that could be part of a warm up. Yep. And if you warm up for three games a week, great, we've got thirty more landings than than we would have weren't doing it. Yep. So. And it's really not changing that it's, it maybe is taking away, you know, 10 basic layup drills that they would have done prior to that anyway, that would have been, you know, what do they mean? That something they're just mulling around, not doing a lot. It just, it, again, it, maybe it's a, a time for play, which is your right. You know, if your guys, guys start to warm up and start to dunk and stuff like that, start to play with things. Well, use that as an opportunity to do some players. Um, and, and we did it and we use those opportunities effectively and it helps a lot. Well, and even, I mean, the interesting thing with high-level basketball is even even dunking in a layup line isn't a high-stimulus activity for the majority of them. Like, most of them are jumping 20 to 24 inches, you know, based on height and span and everything else at that point. You know, so it's even, you know, something that, you know, your normal layperson would see as being high-stimulus for those guys isn't high-stimulus, you know, and they, they can kind yeah. of get in their sleep and walk through it. You know? So I... A, an intention-based plyometric is still going to be very different than that, I think, for a lot of people. And I think it is it's yeah. it, is that kind of off topic, but that that I had a thought exercise probably like four or five years ago, way back when I was even like posting on Facebook that I posted because somebody made made a post or made a comment about, you know, shorter basketball players having higher verticals than higher than taller basketball players. And you know, my, my thought process was kind of like, you know, the, the shark in the goldfish container, right? Where it's like, they, they jump higher literally because they have to jump higher. If you're seven foot and the, and the goal is 10 foot for everybody, 
you literally just don't have to jump as high. And I always wondered like how much truth, obviously there's a body weight difference and everything else. But if you had those guys constantly practicing on a 12 or 13 foot goal, would it be different? Would they develop differently based on that? Would their capabilities be different? So um, it's an interesting thought process because like every, like if you're, you know, you're 610 to seven foot or, or whatever, like, I mean, like every dunk is submaximal. There, you know, there, you might hang on the rim harder, but you're <laughs> jumping, you know, your, your full height probably. So uh, very interesting. I don't know. It, that is interesting a lot, topic. A lot of, a lot of very disparate answers. I remember based on that. So from the different coaches, but it was, it's a fun conversation. Um, but yeah, I, I think that cause that, yeah, it's just like, what, what is the environment you know, kind of demand from that perspective. Cause we even, you know, we see that obviously we even talking about jumpers versus sprinters or whatever, cause your training demands are also going to influence, you know, kind of your capabilities and a, a level of specificity within just your own physiology, even from that perspective, you know, so very cool stuff. Um, switching this a little bit, cause I am interested in this cause I, I just finished some grad school work, but you mentioned also like you're working on your PhD yeah 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 so so i'm doing it from sorry <laughs> yeah it's it's challenging it's challenging when you get rejected from three journals <laughs> in the last couple of months i've been trying to <laughs> trying to publish um it's never fun when you're trying to trying to publish a systematic review when every man this side of wherever is trying to trying to do the same thing post COVID where they had no opportunity to do any face-to-face -face research. So we all dug into what's already been done. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's challenging, but it's a really important part of my journey in bringing together the education that I want to bring through the, the practical world of coaching and showing that it has a really big, relationship with research um and showing that research can sometimes not be the gold standard because there is some terrible plyometric research or plyometric research out there in inverted commas um, and that's some of the stuff that i'm trying to uncover i think my my phd is going to predominantly be about you know this is some of the good stuff of plyometrics and the rest of it is absolute it's kind of fitness industry destroyed kind of influencer um, influenced yes. <laughs> uh, research and, and the systematic review that I'm trying to get published at the moment, it shows that it showed me that in a thousand papers, we got rid of 600 papers because although they had plyometrics in the title, they weren't, actually what is deemed as plyometric so you know what does that do for a young coach what does that do for uh, a student that's going through some form of degree in exercise physiology or you know doing a master's in strength and conditioning um you know, how does that affect them how do they how do they break down that barrier of well this is what the researcher says um, and this is what the coach says you know who do i believe here so it's it's going to be a really important part of how that kind of guides my research then for the future. And, uh, and it kind of, it hurts me to say that I'm not, 
I'm not necessarily out there to put anything brand new to the industry. It's going to be a lot of uncovering what's not correct <laughs> and what needs to be sorted out before we can then kind of set this ground to then kind of project where plyometrics should be and the, the direction that I think the industry is now going. Because I see a lot of coaches doing some great work, very similar to what I'm doing. Um, I'm just trying to systematize it as simple as possible for people as well. Um, I actually did get a, a piece published recently, which was a short piece on, on the language of plyometrics. And again, that is completely destroyed when I say a hop. You know, what, what do you think about? What does that movement look like to you? Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I've seen that some horror stories where you, you've had a coach that's been working with someone online and has told someone to do jumps over three foot six hurdles um, or, or hops over three foot six hurdles. And the coach meant two foot bilateral movements and the athlete tried to do it off of one leg and, and dramatically injured themselves. So, yeah, it, again, that's another part of it. So it's all about my PhD is going to be about systematizing and, and, and really categorizing plyometrics and kind of getting rid of what isn't plyometrics. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one to, to go with, but it's, a, it's been a fun journey so far. and I've got a few more years to it. But I, I will definitely say I, I do... I, I do honestly think there's probably a much bigger return on looking at it from the perspective that you're looking at it as far as kind of cutting out the crap, so to speak, more so than, than trying to, to find like new things. Because I mean, that, that sums up the fitness industry in, in general, unfortunately, where it's just like, we talk about, we work with a lot of young coaches within our, our education programs. And we talk about it all the time is in the age of social media, the most important thing for a coach to, to have is, is a good filter to, to be able to understand what, you know, what is useful, you know, and, and what is just kind of hype because there is more and more out there that is, that is, you know, more marketing material than anything else. Right. And, and I, I think even like I put, I put a story up today, which got a lot of reactions that, you know, even a lot of the stuff that's posted by, by coaches is so technical or so complex that 99% of even their athletic population followers wouldn't get anything out of it, you know, let alone probably perform it right because they, they don't have the prerequisite qualities and experience and foundation needed to even be able to utilize the drill correctly. Right. And I think, you know, circling all the way back to our first, our first bit of conversation, like, that is one of the things that I genuinely enjoy about your page is that it's, it's a lot of stuff that I think is very applicable to somebody with a pretty low training age that will actually move them in the right direction and help them, you know, and I think that's super important because it's, you know, unfortunately, it's not like the sexy stuff that really sells, you know, quote unquote on social media, but it's like the stuff like me as a coach looking at, especially somebody trying to regain you know elasticity that i've just lost over the years and now i'm almost you know <laughs> 40 and it's not not quite what it used to be either um 
it's like, I look at that and I'm like, oh, like that's stuff I could use. Like that's stuff that would actually help me feel better, run better, perform better. And, and it's something that I could, you know, probably pretty easily work into my prep on my conditioning days or something of that nature. So like, I, I do think that's very admirable because it's, it's needed, like just throughout the industry, let alone in plyometrics. And you know what, with what you said about, it's really applicable to the, the kind of young athlete or the, even the, the younger coaches that are trying to use methods. Actually, the scary part about it is that there's a lot of world-class athletes that move like shit <laughs> and cannot perform basic hopping activities and wonder why they're riddled with injuries and stuff. So um, that's what I love about it as well, is that I can... I can cut all the bullshit away from the, the big superstars and, sh- and say, okay, try this movement for me. It looks as simple as this. Um, and, and it really it just shows people, you know, how they should actually be, be learning to move. And, and I'll say as well, <laughs> you going, you're saying that you're kind of, you're getting to a stage where you want to reintroduce elastic stuff. I've, you know, I was a high jumper. I was six foot, six three high jumper. I weighed, what, I'm trying to figure out in pounds. I weighed about 75 kg. So maybe 170? 165, 170, somewhere there. Yeah. 165, yeah. yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, and now I've, I've just made myself the other day. And don't get me wrong, I've, I've tried to put on a bit of muscle. I've been a, a skinny rake the whole of my life. Um, but... I've put on about 12 kg, 13 kg. And believe me, I don't bounce like I used to. <laughs> yeah, my, my track days, I was uh, about 185 at 6'3", 6'4". So very, like pretty thin. And I'm now 225. And it's, it's a whole different world getting out there and running like 400 and 800 meter repeats. It's not, not the same thing as it used to be. <laughs> I, know, I know how it feels. I, I did a... Uh, I just did like a repeat, repeat short sprint session the other day. Did like 20, just 75 meter runs, walk back, 75 meter runs, walk back. And I get back and I'm like, calculate the volume. And I'm like, okay, why do I feel so bad? And you're like, you actually consider the amount of more force that you dealt with in that session as opposed to what I would have done 12 kilos lighter. You're like, okay, that's, that's considerable. That's probably like running an extra, 500 meters yeah in in addition to that so <laughs> it's yeah different ball game now it is it is no um yeah man i i just uh it yeah it's it's amazing like we over the past few years like i've done some consulting with some you know with some some collegiate teams and i like to to the point of what you said like i've watched very high level very like successful, like guys who are probably going to get drafted, like collegiate basketball players who struggle doing like B skips with like the coordination and the rhythm aspect of it. And, and obviously anything more complex than that even is going to be, is, is a disaster, you know, and you're just like, these are guys who are really good at their sport and really good athletes. And they're just, they kind of get by on a lot of natural ability and to be able to pull that extra bit of training and coordination and rhythm into it, like just 
if you can do that, you can fill in a lot of gaps with high level athletes too. Cause I, I do think that's a really good point based off of what I said earlier too, with, you know, lower level people getting better. The, people would be surprised at what really good athletes also just kind of miss because they're naturally really good athletes or really good at their sport and skill makes up for a lot of things in that, in that realm too. Yeah. I think as well, if you, if you were to look at examples of, of how, like an example of basketball and how the shooting game is now becoming such a large portion of, it, especially deep shooting game. But the biggest element to it, I think is the ability of shooters creating space for themselves and their ability to move effectively in doing that. Um, and I think that is also becoming the separation as well. There's a lot of great, a lot of great shooters out there, but the reason why they don't maybe score as well as the other guys do is because of their ability to separate themselves from a defender. Um, and I think that you'd find that someone like Steph Curry could probably do a lot of basic locomotive skills well. Um, and we just assume that it just comes from, you know, he's just an amazing shooter when I think it's, it's sometimes it's quite different from that. It's looking at how he moves biomechanically and what he's doing to get away from a defender and how he handles his center of mass in space and deals with a landing is able to change direction at a much faster rate. So it, yeah, it, I've, I've, I've seen the exact same thing. I've been shocked as to, I'm like, you're a six foot guard and you can't do a, you know, a basic bilateral movement. What, what have we missed there? You know, what, what's not been introduced to you. And, and it's almost like, it's almost like having a really asymmetrical jumper, someone that can only jump off their left leg. It's almost, they, they have that, they have that asymmetry to basketball skills. As soon as you bring in something different, they're like lost, completely lost. They do not have that skill repertoire. Um, and I, I think that there's just bringing basic fundamental skills into, into the lives of those basketball players or field sport players um, is really important. And I think it can be quite effective for longevity of health and longevity of the game as well um, that they play. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a big area to look into. Um, and I'm sure I'll get into it a little bit deeper as, as I move over the next few years and um, working with more field court guys, especially. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's something that I think too, is obviously we, we talk like plyometrics are generally discussed in like the performance realm of sport but i do think just from a, a sheer just tissue quality perspective from from a tendon and ligament perspective there's there's a lot to be said for for the longevity and and the resilience of, of the athletes who are able to perform them well also and, and i think that's that's often overlooked as like a secondary thing but the reality of it is i mean it's it's like I, always, I was actually talking to one of my clients because she's she's getting into running and we were talking about introducing like extensives into more intensives into some other things and she's like she's like well what about like box jumps and I was like well box jumps are great for like force production but they're not probably going to have a lot of carryover to running and your ability to kind of again like decelerate force and propel it back you know and you're not going to get very many elastic qualities from that right you know and and so we're kind of going through just like understanding even like the the foot the ankle the knees and kind of where different levels of plyometric training can also help with just general tissue qualities from that perspective and how that might be different than 
working your way up to like a 40 inch, inch box jump or something of that nature, you know? So it's, uh, yeah, I think even talking about, you're talking about categorizing is huge. It's, it's so important for on a, a tissue level and how the tissue sings in, in sequencing and how that works with the brain is, is really, really important. Um, and it's really overlooked. It's overlooked as a skill paradigm as well. And I think it needs to be considered a lot more as a skill paradigm as to comparing it more towards like a physical thing. It always seems to be like, I've got to improve the quality of me being able to be more explosive or even more elastic to it, to an extent that there seems to be that one direction of the, the intense kind of crew that sees that plyometrics are only this. Um, and it's about your ability to handle force and project your body then into space. And, and that is in almost everything that we do when it comes to speed and power based sports. I mean, and, and even in endurance running, you are deflecting off of the ground. So why would we not work on that skill as an endurance runner? I could say one of the biggest reasons why the, um, why the East African guys are so effective is because of how much, how much plyometric work they do. And I've, I've spoken on a, on a podcast before for an endurance running podcast. And they said, you know, what, what's a major takeaway that you can give someone? I said, well, if you can, if you can add five centimeters to your stride, and you do 5,000 steps in a 10K, how many centimeters is that? And they're like, uh, and they're like, that's like two minutes. I said, yeah, by just increasing your, your stride by five centimeters, by two inches. It, it's, it's absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. Obviously, it would take time, and it would, but it's about becoming more of an effective locomotive beast. So it's learning how to stiffen. It's learning how to use the tendons in a, a more of elastic capacity. It's, it's understanding proprioceptively what your foot feels like in space. It's probably going to teach you better biomechanics for how you run, for how you move, for how you cut. So to be honest with you, the, the, the like intense like guy comes up to me and says, oh, I want to be more explosive. I want to be able to dunk a basketball. Like that stuff really is getting to an extent where it bores me. It doesn't, interests me anymore i'm so much more intrigued about efficient movers yeah. i want to i want to create like a, a basketball player that's able to create space that guys are like shit what did you do in the off season why are you shooting so much better and you're able to show them the difference in between what happened last season or what happened two or three seasons ago and what's happening now you know what what's the difference for uh, a footballer you know so yeah it's it's something that's not spoken about enough um, but it, I think we are gradually moving towards that direction, but it needs, it, plyometrics needs to be included in agility, change of direction stuff, and it needs to be part of the speed paradigm. They, they need to be married together. Um, and I, I get a little bit scared to end the speed realm because I think if you, if you preach too much about speed, you're going to get shot down very quickly by the, by the big guns in the speed world. Um, <laughs> like I would say, I don't know, I'm relatively competent in coaching a bit of speed, but to put stuff out there, I don't know. <laughs> but I so <laughs> marrying those things up, I think is going to be important over the next few years for sure. That's awesome, man. And so we, we are rounding up on an hour and, and I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know it's dinner time for you. Um, 
but I do want to close out as far as just having you let everybody know where they can find you, uh, where they can find your programs, all that good stuff. Sure. So, um, I'm most active on Instagram and you can find me at McInnes Watson, um, which is M C I N N E S Watson. Um, and we also have, also have a business called plus buyers where we have a lot of educational content alongside our programs, which are kind of, you know, you subscribe and it's come and go kind of, you can, you can play with any amount of our different programs that we have for different sports, different stages and levels, everything from return to sport all the way to more advanced stuff. Um, so yeah, and that's at plus buyers on Instagram as well. Um, I don't really understand Twitter, so I don't really, <laughs> I just, I can't get into it. It's so much more, it's yeah, it's a different world to Instagram. So I, I kind of stick to that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's been a, a big part of me trying to push my education out there. So reach out to me on, on Instagram. Um, I love to talk shop about, about pliers as well. Um, as you, as you can tell. So more than happy to talk to aspiring coaches. Um, I'm an aspiring coach myself. So if I can learn from having these sort of discussions, then I'm, I'm all for it. I, I love it. And like I said, for anyone listening, I can't recommend enough. Um, awesome content. I'm about to dig into the, probably to the programs as well, especially as we're getting into summer, I can actually start training outside on a track and a field a little bit too. I, right now I've got about 20 feet of turf available to me and it's not a, not much to get a lot of stuff done, but, but I, uh, once I can get outside, I can do a lot more of the, the fun looking stuff. So I'm excited about it. Um, definitely thank you for coming on. I think this was super informative. Um, and, and like I said, I, you bring a lot of different ideas to the table from what I have you know, kind of seen and, and heard and even talked about uh, traditionally. So I, I definitely appreciate the, the new lens. Uh, thanks ever so much for having me on. It's, uh, it's always great fun to just to get into different topics as we, as we have. And, and, you know, even talking about like adding that element of fun to things, um, I think it's really important. Um, so yeah, thanks so much. Absolutely, brother. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Compound Performance Radio. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. If you liked this episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and drop us a review. We'll see you next time.